Hello, this is Catherine Peary, and this is Coastside Conversations, and my guest today is Cassie Talbot, the one and only, the PMAC representative, the advisor to the senior class, the person who made this amazing speech at the graduation, um, and uh, this is KPDO 89.3 FM, and we're going to talk today about Cassie, and uh, she's got a social justice show that she's going to have on on the radio at some point hopefully soon but meanwhile we just want to get the background on you and how you got here also you've got the, the show is called shields and talbot and we've already got some um you know kind of music rap poetry on the radio um that was done by your roommate partner mm-hmm. harold shields which is very interesting and timely so let's just back up a minute and get the story on Cassie Talbot. I know that you've been here forever, but how did you get to where you are now in Pescadero? Okay. Um, so born and raised in Pescadero, uh, my parents moved out here in the mid eighties as the kind of back to nature movement. And they purchased this property um, out here near Dearborn Park Road. and. Uh, did my whole schooling here at Pescadero from preschool all the way through graduating as a high school student. I, in a nutshell, I went to University of the Pacific for School of International Studies because they required us to study abroad our third year, and that's when I learned Spanish because I studied in uh, Lima, Peru, and Santiago, Dominican Republic, and after that, I kind of found myself like, where do I put all these skills and, or, you know, at least develop my skills <laughs> to some degree. And that was when my mother told me that there was a position open at Puente. So I came in as a learning center associate at the time in 2011. And then when Josh Crockett, uh, who was a Spanish teacher at the time, ended up moving with his partner to Oregon, there was a space for a Spanish instructor. And they knew I was bilingual, but I didn't think I had that those qualifications, but I was very intrigued and went into a teaching cohort program over at San Francisco State in 2016, which gave me my single subject teaching credential while I was teaching. And I graduated from there in 2018, I believe. And so I've been in Pescadero since 2011 and still here presently. Well, you've been in Pescadero since birth. Since birth, yes. <laughs> but well, 31 as, years. <laughs> but your career has also been here. So mm-hmm. you went to the University of the Pacific, which is like over... Stockton. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not far, far away, but, no. you know, it's not like you can come home every day. Um, and so that was your international study thing, was to go to Lima, Peru. And what did you do in Lima, Peru? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was an, it was an exchange program. So we, um, I was meeting my, qual- my requirements for my Spanish minor. So part of being in international relations was you had to have and develop your global perspective. And they wanted you to choose a language and choose a place that you wanted to study to learn that language. So you would come back your fourth year and graduate from the School of International Studies and have language and cross-cultural experiences. And so I chose Lima, Peru. Um, I always wanted to go to Machu Picchu. Oh, yeah. The food is fantastic. <laughs> Some of the best in the world hey, is there. Food. I still miss the food. <laughs> it's always an attraction, yeah. And the Dominican Republic, it was between 
studying in Mexico and studying in the Dominican Republic. And when I thought about the decision, I realized, you know, so many members in our community are from Mexico or have Mexican descent. And I figured it would be a much more meaningful trip to explore Mexico into the towns and uh, locations of my of my fellow residents of Pescadero. So I kind of reserved uh, my Mexico exploration for a later point in my life. And I chose uh, the Dominican Republic because it was the program that was starting the soonest. And that was a lovely experience. The Spanish is completely different. (laughs) So unique, so fast, so different, a lot more influences from Africa. So you were having a, a whole nother mix of Spanish from Spain mixed in with a lot of um, African terminology, specifically from the West Coast, and they speak so much faster. So going from Lima, Peru, I thought I knew all my stuff. And then when I went there, I realized I knew absolutely nothing. And so I had to start almost all over again. It's like college, really, isn't it? You get out of college and you think, wow, here I have my degree. And you start to work and you go, oh, okay, this is the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? This is really the beginning. I mean, you think when you get out of high school, that's the beginning. Yes. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, getting out of college is is the beginning. Yeah. And sometimes it's realizing that the career you chose is, do you never know where your bachelor's degree is going to take you or whether you gain new new learning experiences along the way because I found myself having almost having to start over with being in, in the teaching right. career and that was a bit a whole another journey well and so you you got a I guess some sort of single subject uh, certificate in Spanish or what in Spanish and his in social studies oh, okay and so then you became like the go-to Spanish-speaking teacher mm-hmm. at the high school or middle school um, both high school and, and middle school classes. And I did elementary for a little bit too when I first started. And you said when you were getting, uh, when you were giving your speech at the graduation that you were the advisor for this class for all four years. So I guess as soon as you got there, you were the advisor to the class of uh, 2016. To I mean, the class of 2020 that that started in high school in, in 2016. Yes, I when I was in high school, so many of, what's interesting is many of my colleagues and coworkers are my own teachers from middle school and high school, which I'm sure is <laughs> such an interesting and unique dynamic. Um, That's cool. And what, I, and I remember fundraising. I had Mr. Johnson as my advisor and I knew what it took because I had always held um, a class position. So I was either secretary one year, vice president, uh, president eventually my senior year. So I knew what the four years looked like in terms of fundraising. So I felt really confident in fundraising with the students because I knew knew the ropes. So at uh, least been, around here, right? Yeah, the at least way around we here. Do it. At yeah. least the way it's done in Pescadero, specifically in Pescadero. So and great. these students were just a great dynamic class and full of leadership and spirit. And they did everything and thought of ideas for us to fundraise and get that that money so yeah we were uh we've been fundraising together for four years and they finally graduated this year yeah and sadly they couldn't use the money for a trip but they did use the money for well you got that converted i understand yes i we we had to i had to ask to follow certain guidelines related to that but we're taking the full given the current circumstances in the pandemic they understand we can't use that for a trip so we're converting that into the scholarship or directly into just money that's going to be divided amongst all of them. So that can go towards new technology that they need because their semester this fall will be remote and virtual. So I imagine there is a bunch of items that they may need, whether it's books that are ebooks that are digital, a new computer, 
because uh, the the amount comes up to around five hundred to six hundred dollars per student. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think you can get a decent computer, at least a good down payment on a decent computer exactly. for that. In fact, we recently bought a computer for the studio that cost about seven hundred bucks. And I think, you know, you can do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, $500 goes a long way yeah. to getting that good computer. Um, and so then I listened to this, to your speech. It was pretty cool. I, I was so impressed with the graduation mm-hmm. ceremony. I mean, I really was moved by the speakers. Mm-hmm. These are smart, smart, really amazing kids. Mm-hmm. And so the you had a to a co-valedictorian situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I have to say that, I can't remember the people's names, excuse me, but there was one, the last one who spoke, I think her name was Emily. Yes, Emily. Um, who, who started with, hey, we were born after 9-11. We've lived through active shooter um, drills. Uh, there's been so much concern about security. We've had a lot of anxiety in our lives. And then we have to face the pandemic in our final year. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is a tough road to hoe, right? Mm-hmm. These poor people really have lived through it. And so my question to you is, you know, knowing these kids as you do, is this making them stronger? Is this too big a burden? I think they've always been a resilient group of students. As she said, they've been dealing with traumatic incidences locally and nationally throughout their whole lives. And it's the first time where myself as an educator am experiencing the same traumatic event with them. Mm -hmm. And I think if anything, this has shed a lot of light on the inequities in in our nation and locally in terms of resources, access, language, um, social capital. And for them, I have no doubt that they have the tenacity and resiliency and the confidence in themselves to find a way to make their lives make sense. But what's interesting is all of us are trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had the answers to them specifically, but speaking for myself, I think a lot of awareness of self and try to build yourself up and move yourself forward is the only thing that we can do. One of the things that I was struck by, too, is that the whole graduating class seems to be going to community college to start with. Yes. Um, maybe to get a technical degree or, you know, some sort of certificate, but some of them it definitely it was the first step before going on to a deferred four-year college uh, career. And so is that also, be, you know, one of the, the constraints put on them by the pandemic, the lack of travel and uh, ability to travel to the school of their choice? I think what uh, it could be a few things, but I definitely feel that given the pandemic and how tight knit our community is, having a space where they're supported and being next to their uh, their family is probably on the forefront of their minds. How do I stay healthy and safe while I know my home is? Mm -hmm. And they weren't letting, they almost weren't letting students back into the dormitories anyways. So in that sense, in terms of a pandemic, it's a smart choice. Also, sometimes you don't know what you want to study. And I wish I knew this a little bit more before I went to a private school and racked up like 40,000 a year in debt. But if you, the friends that did community college for two years were able to get 
courses that they could explore at a much more financially uh, affordable. affordable, right? And then a lot of what you studied is just meeting those general requirements. And that can be done so much more inexpensively than having to take it at the $40,000 level. I think it's smart, but I, w I really wondered if it was because they heard a lot during the elections of the burden of school loans, and mm -hmm. that maybe they thought, I don't want that it's, to happen to me. It, it's a smart financial choice, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Hopefully we don't put that burden on kids in the future, that we have a much better way of doing things. I think we are moving forward more on the... On how on understanding how expensive and inaccessible school is and universities yeah. are, and because even I think my parents said they were able to work one summer and were able to pay for their full year yeah. of school at, yeah. at state, and they lived on campus. Yeah. For me, I could never make the money that I need to make for a summer. In a summer, no, school is way more expensive now than it mm -hmm. used to be for no good reason. Exactly. It's not. It's not like it's wonderfully more. You know, better education. It's the same. So, mm -hmm. or in some cases, worse. It's just a lot more administrators. Apparently, we've really got to start making the school, the colleges, uh, you know, tell us what what's this all about and. Yeah. The you know the government has to step in and make this a lot easier on on people you know because it prevents starting families and starting businesses and all kinds of stuff and you wind up in your parents' home for a really long time so that mm -hmm. you can afford to pay your student loans you you can't get started in life in the way that in my generation you could and and that's not a good thing it's bad for our whole our whole society. You said something about social capital, a lack of social capital. Um, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Social capital is, it basically means that you, you intrinsically know how to navigate a system through having contact with others that are, that are rela related to the dominant culture in place. And that can cross, and that crosses uh, difference. So that includes race, economic standing, um, culture, language. So with social capital, a person in this society has the most access if they are part of dominant culture, meaning person in power, saliently white, speak English as their native language, all those things. So social capital is kind of knowing how to intrinsically navigate the systems created by a dominant culture. And having social capital is you mean you know how you have those skills of navigation in society. Sometimes uh, we'll come across in the educational field, we'll come across students that you know don't know certain things that we were taught that me as a white person was taught very early on in sure. the beginning. And that's the social capital is under the capital in terms of uh, you know how to navigate and access and what would, is deemed acceptable. So you have those thing. skills innately inside you kind of thing. Because, yeah, because yeah. My, my identity and is part of a dominant culture, so the culture that is in place that runs everything is mm -hmm. what I'm a member of, mm -hmm. almost kind of like in a, in, a, in a cultural sense and also is salient across, across our dominant culture, economic process and political standing so one of the things i know that you want to do is have a a show on on kind of activism the history of activism social justice and i just want to get more into in depth about that and mm -hmm. so like for example what kind of a show would it be what what are the subjects you would discuss what do you have in mind for example for one of your first shows. What are you thinking about? Well, the first one that should be coming out very soon is um, in regard to the Black Lives Matter 
uh, protests and movement that we saw here, even in Pescadero this past weekend. And Very that timely, one is, yes. It, yeah. And that is, and that is one of them. And how this actually started was, um, and this ties Mr. Shields into this, uh, me and Harold met in 2016 in our cohort at San Francisco. So we're both teachers and educators and he and I sat down and, we're, and we've gone through so much, we went through so much equity and social justice conferences, training, sometimes the same training together. And we wanted a way to be able to verbally express in a way that we'd be able to further our knowledge and bring in guests to keep the work going. Because um, when you're going kind of against, when you're going against what the system wants you to do, you need places to share your, you need spaces and places and people to support you and also a way to keep you motivated, keep you doing the work. So for specific episodes that we had thought of at the time before COVID-19 was the housing crisis, talking about... It's still um, a big deal. Which is still a big deal, talking about white silence as resistance, so silence equals compliance and uh, trying to do something that was inclusive of, of educators of color um, but also being a space where white educators could find resources to know more about what it means to be a white teacher in the United States or a white person in the United States and also be working and teaching students of color. Which we are here. Which we are, 70% of our students are students of color and the majority of our teachers are white. Yeah, and we have a situation here too where we have a lack of resources. It's it's an underserved community in so many ways. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has me concerned is, you know, our society has largely started to adopt the internet as a way of life in a sense that we don't know how to teach without it. We don't know how to research without it. We don't even know how to socialize or do marketing without it. Mm-hmm. And yet so many people here don't have the internet and I think they're falling through the cracks in terms of the educational system and our school district and our board of trustees and um, the people trying to solve the problem instead of saying okay well we've, we've got to do parallel tracks here we've got to find out how to get the internet here and we've got to deal with the current situation and reach the kids with no internet I think that last part isn't happening you know, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have the radio station and I urged for them, the county, to fund it soon was so that we would have a, a way of reaching out. But I think that there's some blinders on as far as the people who, you know, how many kids are there? What are their names? Where do they live? How do we reach them? I think that's missing from the picture myself. I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I could be wrong, Cassie. No. Tell me if I am, because I would love to be wrong on that. No, I think, and I think, you know, our students were already, um, some of us were, some of them were succeeding and some of them were not. And even the defini- definition of success is really relative to who is defining what success looks like and to whom, mm-hmm. and who benefits from the current bias system in place. And when it comes to education, it comes to our community, I think before COVID, some that were already slipping through the cracks, cracks are unmotivated in, in school, and that's understandable. Uh, being a person of color in um, a white-dominated world is a whole other struggle that I will never know in the skin that I'm in. 
But we did and, find out a lot about it in the last few weeks. And what, what, now, yeah, exactly. And post-COVID, now, like, during in the middle of the pandemic, those inequities are even more salient. And I think mm-hmm. that's why we're getting this surge of we do need to get all that data on our students of, you know, is there internet access? And if there's not, then we need to look for other resources, which you graciously provide an opportunity for us to use that radio. And it could be used. And that is, you know, I read the articles that you sent me just last night and I was like, yeah, this is something that it's almost kind of like a relearning process. Like, oh, I've never seen the radio done that in my lifetime because I was part of the tech boom in the 90s and right. but I was like yeah but this is what people used to do they would read to get, you know, they would listen to gain mm-hmm. information read newspapers and I think that's not um, that's not a crazy thing to suggest I think that's very salient well and it's happening all over the world and has been since like the 20s 1920 so almost for a hundred years people used the radio as opposed to online to learn a lot of stuff the news you know the latest information about any subject science you name it and um, to be read to over the radio that's very easy to do yeah you know and so it's one of those things where I think it's people forget. They want to use the latest thing, and that's great if you have access to the latest thing. But if you don't, you've got to face reality, right? Of course, here I am speaking hopefully to the choir. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> On this. Um, okay, so the, the other thing we need to mention is that Harold is black yes. and that he has produced some music. We have a show already that he's, you know, he contributed most of the music and content to that. You produced like a, you know, 10 minute interview with him. Going forward, are you going to be doing that combination of things where you're talking about things and providing some sort of like music or poetry or? a creative expression to um you know kind of emphasize that particular message yeah um harold has always his the content of his the content of his songs has always been kind of almost telling a story of his life experiences and where he's been at the moment i could tell by listening you know it's kind of painful actually and as a a black male in America having gone through the whole education system and then also being a black educator, which is, I think, a 2% representation. He has so much to offer, as does everybody on the planet, but he offers so much and chooses that as his medium of expression. And he is in the middle right now of actually producing another album. So I imagine that that will be out as well. So I do foresee us having a mixed of having his music and having um, the content that we're creating. We actually just interviewed uh, a fellow educator yesterday um, about what's going on at her school site and what's, you know, her backstory and how she's navigating the system um, of still being, of being a virtual educator and mm-hmm. also still doing the work around social justice and equity on at her school site. So we're getting all these interview contents to then eventually be releasing all these perceptions of other educators in the Bay Area as well of what's going on with their schools. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. So when you, do you, th- do you envisage, envisage ever seeing yourself doing this live or is this always going to be recorded, you think? And I, and I say live because... In the next week or two, of course, I'm always very optimistic, but <laughs> in the next couple of weeks, we're, we're going to have 
call-in availability where people would be able to have a conversation over the phone with you know we have a couple of shows that we're planning one would be a counseling show called coastside cares that would be shared with half moon bay Mm -hmm. and here and we would do counseling how are you feeling during this you know shelter in place how are you dealing with not being able to go to work or working from home and teaching your kids and all that stuff, which has been a trial for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to just have the ability for people to call in. So if you have a show that's on an interesting subject, and they do this, uh, you know, Linea Abierto is a, a show that is on at noon okay. that Radio Bilingue has, mm-hmm. and they publish in advance what the topics will be and encourage people to call in right so I mean you guys could do the exact same thing if you had a show say at seven o'clock on a particular night and you could just sort of in advance say we're going to be talking about social justice in this respect these are the things we want to cover this is our guest this is what we want to talk about you might get some people who are either emailing you you know now you have an email yes I'm so excited about that um Shield, what is it? Shield. Shields Talbot at kpdo.net. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're mentioning. And um, it came at such a great time because we got that test email yeah. and we're like, yes, because we're going to say that in our, um, in the Black Lives Matter episode okay. uh, to reference that because I know that a lot of this is maybe new for some people, these concepts and these things. And if I, I wanted to be, be, a, be a welcoming space of, or a welcoming line of communication that, hey, if you find yourself in, in anger or dissonance or just wanting to know more, like we're available to respond mm-hmm. and have some courageous conversations around those topics. Um, I think there's a lot of words out there too that people don't understand and it's so great to talk about it and get to the bottom of it. I know among my friends everybody was of course very concerned about the phrase defund the police and after reading a lot of articles about it and understanding what it meant I sort of explained it to some of my friends in Mm -hmm. terms of scaling back like military equipment and de-escalating things that the police do and then upscaling the things that are mental health interventions and a, a number of things like that so you don't have the police coming in with a gun to a person who is in you know an emotional distress or something like that but it's it's one of those things a lot of people are worried about. They they very easily could misunderstand what it's about and get ex- excited about that. And I think we need to have conversations. I mean, it's not just a matter of teaching people. It's dialogue, right? A lot of dialogue. A and lot to of me, yeah, to me, the idea of just these are the words you're supposed to use instead of let's have a conversation about this. What does it really mean? Um, I think it's much more helpful if you can have like a call-in show where people can ask their questions and say, well, well, does this mean that we're really going to defund the police and get rid of them, which I guess in some cities they're actually starting over, which is, you know, a different, different situation. But I have to say, we just found out that the school district funding has been greatly reduced. Yes. And at the same time, South San Francisco got some sort of military vehicle for their police department, which is like enough to make you want to pull your hair out, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. how untimely is that? So there's very real 
impacts on changing or reimagining the police, but also just reimagining our lives in a social justice context. So, so much to talk about, and I think people are open to it. I think so too. For for a community to move forward, you know, the a lot of when we get either anger or input from people, it, it comes from around the terms of, you know, white supremacy, it comes around defund the police, it comes around Black Lives Matter. But so I always ask, you know, who's upset? What do they look like? What is their race? What is their financial status? Because those things matter. Because mm-hmm. as a white, speaking in the skin that I'm in, I will never be able to experience racism because the ones in power look just like me. And I didn't grow up with a fear of police. Mm -hmm. Um, The ones that are marching right now are people of color, all these, all these uh, organizations. So to say that uh, to counteract black lives matter, brown lives matter, or or anything to say, you know, all lives matter or these things, it it just means, well, it's just, we, they do, but they don't now, like, and they haven't since the beginning of this country. So when, when all lives do actually matter, it starts with talking about how those hard conversations, as you said, about talking about race, what role do we play in it? And what does your activism and allyship look like? And how do we cultivate that in this community? And common knowledge is uh, common, not common vocabulary is one of them. Mm-hmm. A community needs to get together to understand what the words mean and what they understand in the context of where they live and we'll say this also in our Black Lives Matter episode, like we are, you know, you, to do national activism, you first have to start with your community. And sometimes right. that's the harder one because you have to have conversations with people who you, I, you, grown, you grew up with and you're like, man, I know we don't share the same view, but walking into that discomfort first means you'll be much stronger to do that anywhere else. And I, I want to say before we get too far, this is KPDO. FM, serving Pescadero and the South Coast. And I I think that we're in a wonderful community here for us to understand what it means on the ground uh, in terms of at least Brown Lives Matter. And when I first moved here, I have to remember, I remember in 1989, things were very different then. The prejudice against Mexicans was so palpable and people would not look you in the eye if they were a Mexican person. It's not nearly like that as it now as it was then. Way more very strong bilingual young people have grown up and become powerhouses in this community and the, the you know the attitude and the admiration about you know the young bilingual boys and girls who became men and women in this community, who are pillars of this community, mm-hmm. it has totally changed, you know, because I guess to some extent they got that, what, social capital. They learned how to mm-hmm. maneuver in the system in a way that people recognized as, oh yeah, that that's pretty confident, that's pretty powerful, and they sound, you know, very English-speaking, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, you know, you do start to realize our attitudes of just ignoring the people who aren't like us or assuming that they're not as good or smart or whatever as we are has got to change for every single person. Whether they're coming in here new or they've been here for a while, if we don't recognize them, that doesn't mean they're not you know, fully human. 
And it's it's an education for people. You know, and I remember living through this in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I went through the civil rights movement. Yes. And I lived in East Oakland, which mm-hmm. was, you know, I learned why people were afraid of the police. It was mm-hmm. a scary place to live, honestly. I'll tell you a story. Um, I was a hippie activist. Yes. <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell this to people. And um, in like my junior and senior year in college, I was in college in Oakland. I lived in what was called a community house. So at the time, there were a lot of people experimenting with communal living of different sorts, right? Yes. And this was half black and half white, and it was half Protestant and half Catholic. And we were having active dialogues with each other, and we were mostly volunteers. A lot of us were volunteers for VISTA. I don't know if you remember what VISTA was, but it's kind of like AmeriCorps or something like that. Anyway, um, one of the people who was my roommate, her name was Darlene, was a good friend of Artie Seal. Artie Seal was Bobby Seal's wife. Mm. And so I got to know Artie Seal purely in the context of having little parties and she would dance and she was just a nice person. And I was, you know, even though I was in theory very against racism, I was really clueless as to Mm -hmm. what that was and what the impact was on people, right? And so very naively, I invited Artie to speak at a student lounge, just an informal gathering of the students at Holy Names College without realizing the implications. And of course I told the students and I I sort of promoted it through the the local, you know, our college newspaper. I didn't think about the reaction of the teachers. Yeah. And so she was there and somebody called the police. Oh my God. Somebody, not surprised, probably a nun, I hate to say it, Mm. called the police and 35 patrol cars screamed up Highland Avenue, sirens blaring because the Black Panthers were attacking Holy Names College. It's like so embarrassing for me, but so horrible for her. Now, what was interesting was that the white students who were there were suddenly, oh my God, what's all this about? Because they were as clueless about racism as I was, Mm -hmm. right? And it's, you know, the police came in assuming something awful was happening. Who knew, who knows what call they got, right? And then saw that there was nothing really happening. But, of course, it broke everything up. And then, sadly, I mean, I never heard from her again. She wasn't going to associate with me or my you know group because for all she knew it was a setup i could never talk to her again it was so sad for me but it just made me realize how incredibly dumb and naive and clueless i was about the danger i was putting her in you know Mm -hmm. and at that point i just didn't understand i was 19 you know or something like that i'd grown up as a you know, clueless white kid who was smart but dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I've regretted that ever since, but been painfully aware of, at least from my standpoint, of the racism of the police. Yeah. 
you know. And that was like a scary proposition. But I think the same thing happens even now. Uh, oh, yeah. But not just to black people. I mean, the brown people in our community are terrified of some segments of the police and of enforcement of the law. Oh, they are. Yeah, they've been... Yeah, the, our, our local populace is uh, living in a, a different type of hell in addition to being in a pandemic, but fearful of fearful of ICE, fearful of police, living in a world that isn't inclusive of their language, of their culture, or not recognized as being important. And I think um, in, in relation to your story, I remember the when I started doing this work, I was, you know, it's painfully old, like 27, to realize that you live in this bubble of privilege that uh, not saying that life can't be hard, but the color of my skin didn't make my life any harder. And I don't have fear of police because I know who pulls up is going to look just like me. And right. because they, we, I know they speak the same language, I'm going to be able to talk my way out of something or right. be able to communicate in a way that they recognize as not fearful. But because um, ever since the beginning of our country, we are we built this country based on mass genocide of brown people and then brought slaves over from Africa and that is you can't get rid of that just through the you can't get rid of that the 300 400 years of that sentiment and just by desegregating schools or desegregating spaces Mm -hmm. I think James Baldwin said it best in one of um, his interviews I'm not gonna remember it word for word but he said you know I don't know if the white man hates me but I don't know but I'm not allowed to go to the same church I'm not allowed to do this, I don't know if he actually hates me, but I'm not allowed to go to the same school, not allowed to do all these things. And then even when you do go to the same school, racism takes a different form. Or when racism mm-hmm. goes into a grocery store, you're still watched. Mm-hmm. So even though we're, t- we're co-mingling across the differences, we still don't recognize as they are essential to what, what makes America great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even hate to use that phrase. <laughs> what makes it grab Be careful what I was you like, say. wow. What makes, it, what makes America the quote-unquote melting pot? Yeah. But then you you want you want to be able to say, people will say all the time like oh but you know we're this melting pot of cultures yet you don't want to understand that other culture you want to have them the ones that aren't part of dominant culture modify themselves so they sound quote unquote good English speakers, or they act just like we do. I think Um, second generation is where the melting begins. You Mm -hmm. know, the first generation, my my grandmother was an immigrant, she was an Irish immigrant at a time when Irish people were not allowed to get a job. You know what I mean? You had to be a maid, a garbage collector, something very, very Mm -hmm. menial. And then her daughter, you know, was born here and, and became a very strong, independent woman. And then by my generation, second generation, you know, were assimilated. That's the melting pot. That's where you melt. <laughs> you've, you've lost your, well, you have that, as you put it, social capital. You know how to navigate the culture that is dominant, right? Yeah, and I, and I imagine... I imagine a future where that effort in code switching or modifying yourself doesn't have to exist in order to be accepted. Not not in as exaggerated a form. Yeah, Yeah. not in the way that it is present now. Mm -hmm. I agree in 
the what you know what does a melting pot theoretically look like but I, that comes with that mutual respect and understanding and not changing anyone from where they come from but we live in a society today where you have to constantly code switch and analyze your how you would navigate a situation when you're going to be dealing with people across your differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more um, our local populace is aware of that and welcoming those types of conversations, uh, I promise you the relationships get stronger. They don't get weaker. Well, mm-hmm. here's one of the big tra- challenges you had. Now, you, you may remember we had the town planning meeting yes. back in March mm-hmm. last year, and we had 217 people there about 40% English speakers, mono-English mono speakers, about 40% mono-Spanish speakers, which yes. was like a miracle. And then the rest were like 20% bilingual, which was also way more than I realized mm-hmm. that we had in this because community. Because we divided into those groups. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was really kind of cool because we learned that, hey, you want to meet a, a, a mono-Spanish speaker, you you have a bilingual person introduce you that was really powerful and simple and obvious but of course until somebody says it you don't think of it um but that's when i realized i mean i i was part of the steering committee for that and i realized the incredible effort of outreach that it took to get those spanish speakers to the table and it had to be trusted people from puente from Alfredo Vergara Lobo, who's somebody I, I did an interview of, and that interview's on the KPDO website, he was instrumental in, in going out and meeting all these people, where they live, where they work, having focus groups, trying to get those people together. But here's the remarkable thing. Once everybody did get together and people could hear what is the vision, here are the, here are the possibilities, Everybody was on the same page. Yes. Everybody agreed. Everybody had the same values. And, you know, it's not surprising because we've lived through this before. We had a town planning uh, session in 2004, and we, and we learned that despite our differences, conservative, liberal, you, whatever you want to call those differences, we all came out understanding as we were educated about the options yeah, these are the things that we really want, right? And we wanted a little plaza where, say, the stroller marms could come and the farmer's market could be there and we could have a public bathroom and maybe a little garden and, you know, we could have a trail from the town to the ocean and, you know, we have to have housing. Everybody needs housing. It's, like, critical, right? Mm -hmm. We're all on the same page. Yeah. I think there were two people who disagreed with the housing thing. Out of 217, you think, who are those people? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but the point is, our differences are so kind of superficial, you know? And, and yeah, and without that, you know, without... Puente, Puente's been doing this work forever, community organizing in terms of translating everything and making sure that everyone feels included takes massive amounts of organizing and community knowledge in order to get everyone to the table. And that's where true involvement comes from. It was when everyone is actually present, then we can say that we're making community informed decisions. But if we don't have a representation from everybody there, then we're not making decisions as a community. But that was a perfect example of something that was the start of what 
those can look like and what effort it takes into creating those. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to do another one too because now that we know what our basic priorities are and our most critical priorities, now we have some options as to what, what those will actually look like on the ground. And so then you have to get people together and say, okay, we, we know you want a plaza. Do you want it to look like this? <laughs> you know, and you, we know that you want housing. What about this kind of housing? You know, we have to get a little bit more specific so that the county, you know, it's always based on agreement. If there's consensus on how to move forward in concrete terms, it's yes. much easier to do it than if it's just pie in the sky, you know. Mm -hmm. exactly. So we do have to have more planning, but we're already, I mean, from that planning meeting, we got funding. Well, not a lot of funding, but we got a, a grant writing program together, which was great. We've got some people who are committed from that, who are doing grant writing for the plaza proposal and for the trail. And, yes. You know, people still are working on the housing thing. So, you know, but that we have to keep moving forward. And exactly. Nobody's reported back to the community on how we're doing that. Very true. And I think one of the, the big problems is we've been so, everything's been put into slow motion by this shelter-in-place thing. Yes, absolutely. You know, don't you think? I hope people forgive us for not moving forward more quickly. It's been tough to do. I think people are in a weird space, a different space, um, and sometimes a very, and a very traumatizing space because you're, if you already had problems with access or job stability, now we're left yeah. with a whole new bucket of problems in addition to what we already have been experiencing. And then if you're in a more privileged space where you have your own home and you're not worried about your housing or food, then you're still worried about either getting sick and also anything that you probably pushed off to the side as we normally do in this society, like you, you're putting your emotions in this little box. Now that you actually are at home and you're thinking about maybe your life and reflecting and if you have any um, emotional or um, traumatizing events, sometimes those are resurfacing. And then God forbid, I've heard, um, you know, I've heard and I know that, you know, some people are living with abusive domestic partners yeah. um, or uh, alcoholic family members. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, now that they don't have a job to go physically to check them or to at least put a line where we're having a lot of traumatic experiences. And if anything, we're going to have um, a lot more cases of things that we need to address after we're able to mingle again. I think mental health, I mean... Mental health is huge in yeah, wellness. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Morrow, the, the guy, Dr. Scott Morrow, who's our medical health officer, when he released the last revision of orders, he said, <laughs> one of the things he said is, it's normal to feel a little unhinged right now. <laughs> I'm thinking... Yes. I think, yeah, a lot. Thank you for saying that because yes. I think we're all going, wow, I don't know if I can handle this for too much longer, you know? Oh, yeah. The first, I, I, as, uh, once again, as a, as a teacher and in a very privileged um, spot, because I'm never worried about my housing, because I live at home with mom and dad, um, <laughs> they, um, I was left with, the first two months, I was almost uh, digging up that box of emotions that I had set aside. And mm -hmm. that pro and then that process, I got to really great revelations, but at the same time, uh, it was basically hard conversations with myself mm -hmm. and I'm sure and I, then I started thinking like if I'm the, if I'm going through this not only is everyone going through this 
uh, but my kids must be feeling it, my students must be feeling it so much more on a level where they're still developing their social-emotional tools mm -hmm. and self-soothing techniques. And if I'm having a problem as a 31-year-old adult, then mm -hmm. my, my students might not even be able to pinpoint what they're feeling, but they're doing a lot of stuff that... Well, Emily kind of said that in her talk. She said we all slipped into a depression. Absolutely. Going through this. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think a lot of people have, mm -hmm. you know, and some people have been really busy because of homeschooling and, and other things and you know they they're going crazy just because it's way too much having to learn how to homeschool and how to learn how to be working from home when they haven't done that before but at least they have jobs right whereas other people have nothing have nothing they yeah. lost their jobs they don't think their their business and or their their um the, their employer is going to exist they're in total anxiety mode. They don't know what to do. How do you find a job right now? This is why I personally think universal basic income right now is so important. Why won't they pass that? It just seems so basically obvious to me. Mm -hmm. You know that everybody needs a, a they need if you're going to make people stay home and they can't work, give them, you know, the means of survival. You know, and if they didn't have a, a regular job before, they were caretakers or whatever, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, and that, it, that's a, it's just uh, one, one solution, one idea of a solution for many issues that are happening. And I think you definitely nailed it on the head that as we move forward in our own spheres of influence, everyone's personal story is needed understanding of where they come economically, racially, culturally, and including wellness into mm -hmm. that piece in order to make informed decisions moving forward, whether this is our community or it's like our job, our space of work, where is everyone at? How mm -hmm. did they get affected by all of this? And how do we move forward? And those are the conversations we're starting to have now that we're in summer, mm -hmm. preparing for the fall. We know we can't move forward without equitable practices, more socially just oriented curriculum, mm -hmm. and having that piece of the wellness and the connections because our students are floundering, maybe not academically, but missing that social connection with each other and sure. just having hu the human contact. We need, which we, or social animals, we have to have that. We have to have, so we have to know someone loves and cares about us, but mm -hmm. sees us for who we are. Right. Yeah, well, I'm hoping, you know, count, one thing that we can do on the radio is we can tell people, you know, here are the resources available to you. We do have mental health treatment facilities or, you know, counselors available. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to let people know that that's an outlet. That's yeah, something. links and time slots or the, you know, the stage, if, you know, if they have a radio at home. Uh, the time that they tune in for listening to a specific segment that their their you know their work is then based off of whether it's just journaling or whether the the job is just to listen you mm -hmm. know either one I think that the more and I do think you're on the you're promoting a very powerful track because we we need to have that content in order for it then to be you know for them to say tune in at this time because these if we have a multitude of subjects and a multitude of services on the radio that it's more you know that you can pull from then 
we can finally say, like, go to all this time, this mm-hmm. channel, this slot, mm-hmm. and this is going to be when you're going to learn this. Plus, we have archives. I mean, archives, yes. Yeah. So, and other con- and we have other, like, uh, what's it, Radio Bilingue is yes. like a thing that we connect with as well. We merge. Mm-hmm. Well, we have affiliations with affiliations. Radio Bilingue and also Global Community Radio, mm-hmm. um, and we're working on perfecting that situation also. I should just mention Puente is a, a resource for mental health. Absolutely. Um, and their number, uh, just in case you feel the need to call them, is 879-1691. Yes. And, you know, reach out because they are the county's arm right now in terms of delivering services, mental health services. They have food distribution. They have a lot of uh, resources and links that, that people can take advantage of. So, um, hey, let's. there's a resource we can go to. Um, but we also have to have more than that. You know, there's links to uh, different ways that, that people can sign up for um, medical. Yes. Uh, you know, interesting medical care. The census is really important. I hope everybody understands that if we don't all fill in the census and it's private, nobody's name is going to be in some database, we're not going to get the funding that we need. For the services that we need. Absolutely. And it's so clear right now that people, many more people need those services, mental health services. Um, and it, one of the things that's so cra- crazy right now that you really see clearly is why have we had medical insurance tied to our jobs? We have 40 million plus people uninsured, unemployed and therefore uninsured yeah. just because they lost their jobs. I mean... Does that make any sense? Hopefully we fix that too, you know? I mean, I think that we're poised right now for some massive change. Yeah. I really hope so. I mean, we need it. That's one thing that's clear. Let's hope that everybody understands that. I think some of the, in the conversations that I've had regarding that, you know, national, you know, for, you know school for everybody and healthcare for everybody, the pushback has been like, well, then I, they almost feel like something's being taken away from them because people that I've had conversations with are of um, a privileged sense that they have that through their job or they have that in their retirement. And I'm like, it's for some of them, like, you don't even take advantages of the services and you have them right now. You know, you have all these things going on with you and you still won't go. But that's, that, and that's, and that's where... <laughs> that's a guy, or I'm pretty sure. It's, it's a guy, a, guy who will a guy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but this is coming across also viewing our all inhabitants of our country as everyone is worthy of those services and everyone so the the health of the collective is our personal health our personal health is part of the collective that's right um and that means having all those those national services just being a given Mm -hmm. actually would level the the playing field more make it more equitable and make people more confident be able to go out there and find a job knowing that they're not going to starve tomorrow you know or start a business look at all the entrepreneurs within the Spanish-speaking community, all of the handymen, all of the uh, landscaping guys, all of the cleaning ladies, all of these people who do so much for our community, you know, that we're using right now. And then, hey, we've got the taqueria. We've got Spanish speakers who are starting businesses. Let's, you know, this is part of our whole community flourishing is to make everybody flourish, right? Give them a, a foundation to stand on. Yeah, the battles that we choose as a country, like cracking down on immigration or cracking down, it just shows how we view others, how we view people of color in this Mm -hmm. country. 
choosing battles where we're going to be looking out for the health and wellness of the collective in order for everyone to have a greater start in life to then be a greater contributor but keeping everyone down that isn't of dominant culture is not the way we're going to have and and we should know that from our past but we don't you know we don't remember our history i remember uh my parents were brought up in san francisco during the depression and then world war ii and they were union people, totally for the union, mm-hmm. because the union had made so many uh, strides in terms of, you know, work better working conditions, the the forty hour week, having weekends, having you know benefits, having vacation, all that sort of thing, and we forget the fight, we forget all the arduous labor that went into getting those benefits, you know, and so it takes a fight. That's what it does. It just, we have to keep, we can't, just because it's logical, just because it makes sense, just because it's obvious to us, we can't stop being activists because it, people will, it's laissez-faire, you know, let it just go, let it, let, let's just keep the status quo, it's so much easier, you know, and, and those people who want change, they're the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and it just come on, wake up, people. We it's so obvious. We have to go through a major transformation in this country. You know, it's just so obvious. Yeah, and I think we're in the middle of it. Whether we like it or not, it's happening, and we need to embrace it and understand it and have a conversation about it and really uh, be a part of it so that it can you know be shaped by us, right? So here I am, an old person telling you this, you know. But hey, I was an activist in the past. I really haven't Mm -hmm. ever stopped completely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're getting kind of close to the end of the show. I'm just wondering, how close are we to getting a show from you, a recording from you? How soon can we get started? I believe it's our time slot on Sundays, right? So the, well, you have your first. Well, there's you have several time slots, but the goal is to we're gonna we're gonna play everything that anybody's recorded on Sundays as like this people. is this is everything. Yeah, um, and then it repeats two or three times during the week. I'm before I don't even want to say that. I want to say not too late on Saturdays. My goal, Harold, right now is working on our. The audio, so I'm more of the, I like piecing it together and I call it good, but he always has to do the final review because he compresses and he makes it sound better. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, I, I want to get the content out, man. He's like, he's after he reviews and we'll have our um, related to Black Lives Matter protest, specifically to the one in Pescadero. And then we already have content for another week or two week awesome. show so we're very excited about it oh fabulous i'm so excited we are too <laughs> oh that's great okay well i'm really looking forward to that and i just want everybody to know so it's going to be i think on on sunday if if we get the show it'll be at what 5 p.m i think yeah 5 p.m on sundays 5 p.m on sundays and then i think it plays again at 7 p.m on tuesdays and then maybe 8 p.m on fridays or something i forget uh, but the schedule will soon be up on the website, mm-hmm. will be on the Facebook page. Yes. <laughs> the website is kpdo.net. So I'm so glad that we had this conversation, Thank Cassie. You so much, Catherine. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm really looking forward to this content. So thanks so much for doing this. And 
I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to your show, and I'm looking forward to an interview with Harold at some point. Absolutely. He, I let him know he's on. He'll, he's available. <laughs> that would be so cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we will hear you on the radio. Thank you.